0: What I'd like is for the environmental folk that are opposed to it to come sit at the table with us and engage with us and let's together in a collaborative manner, take this forward and and build this new industry in a manner that enables mankind to achieve our goals, but to do it in a manner that we are not continually fighting for.
1: The Energy in Transition podcast is the first of its kind exploring the critical role of oil and gas in energy transition. Energy transition is not transition away from hydrocarbons. It's a collaborative effort towards a lower carbon future. And these are the stories of the companies and people that are actively reducing emissions and actually getting us there. Leaders from all sectors will discuss industry trends and topics like emerging technologies, global energy demand, access to capital markets, ESG, and Workforce Innovation. This podcast is sponsored by In Companies and Galtway Marketing. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Leslie Beyer with the Energy and Transition podcast. Welcome back. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Um, we're here at the Fletcher Azul Tequila Studio in Houston. We have a very exciting guest today. Hans Schmidt is the president and CEO of Ocean Minerals. And this is part of our series around rare earth minerals, critical minerals, and the role of those in energy transition, um, how we need to be looking at supply chains and different resource areas for these critical minerals and rare earth minerals as it's really coming to the forefront right now. So Hans, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Leslie. Of course. So I'm so happy to have my first South African in the podcast studio. Um, anything you know from there that you want to talk about? Any local flavor to share? Um, I know you live in Florida now, yes. but um, we're going to get into your bio a little bit, but that's just exciting for us. Um, you are a president CEO, and Ocean Minerals was founded in 2016, and I understand that your mission is to responsibly transform deep ocean natural resources in a sustainable manner, um, pr- transform those resources into prosperity. So that's essentially deep sea mineral mining, correct? Correct. Okay. Yep.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you know the the reality we face is that you know as the world transitions into this uh, into this alternate energy, uh, there are a need for metals to to underpin these new technologies. You know whether it's an EV battery uh, or a battery for an EV vehicle, whether it's battery storage, uh, you know critical metals that are needed for building the equipment that supports this. We have to source this from somewhere, and we have to have enough of that so that the, the people developing this technology and inventing this technology don't feel that there's a restriction or a limitation. And part of the challenge we face at the moment moving forward is that the terrestrial sources and the traditional sources of these minerals um, are becoming a challenge. And the challenge is not that there aren't enough of them, the challenge is are we able to get them in a cost-effective manner? Are we able to get them in an economic manner? And can we get them without doing more detrimental damage to the earth? And this is where I think ocean minerals and and in particular seabed minerals has a very important role and an essential role to play moving forward.
1: Absolutely. So you mentioned energy transition and and how critical these are. A lot of the companies that we work with in energy services are also involved in this. Um, So I kind of look forward to get into the details of it. I know you personally have 20 years of um, worldwide underwater mining and subsea engineering. Um, that is an extraordinary background. I know you you started out mining underwater diamonds. is that correct I yeah mean, that's that 's very interesting to me
0: yeah <laughs> yeah it was um, you know I, I when I left school, I went to the Navy and spent seven years in the navy so that was where and grew up in a seaside town so the the ocean was always an important part of my um, my lifestyle and and where I wanted to be. Um, but when I left the Navy, I needed to go and find something else that was exciting to do and And kind of you know kept with the nautical theme, and I was very fortunate at that time in Cape Town. The diamond mining industry uh, was moving from on land into the ocean, and that presented that unique opportunity to you know to get into that industry and be part of the growth of that industry. Uh, So you know we got involved. Well, I personally got involved in the in the mid 1990s. Um, was part of um, the the group that invented the technology that uh, that is now used for mining diamonds underwater. Oh, wow. And, you know, spent 20-odd years, um, help grow that industry. And today uh, in Namibia, it's the key source of of their diamond revenue. So, yeah, it's an exciting place to be and it was great to pioneer that. And now to be in the deep water uh, mineral business and helping pioneer that is uh has, has really gives me a lot of pleasure that I'm involved in both of those.
1: Absolutely. So, how did you make that transition from that mining into this into this company? What was your progression through that?
0: So, uh, we had uh, a lot of uh, work going on in the diamond mining industry, um, and we had a very um, successful engineering company. Uh, but 2008 with the the financial crisis really put uh, a damper on that. Um, the mining industry went into a holding pattern, they weren't doing any capital spending. Um, you know, They, they just kind of sat back and, and waited to see where things were going and that took about three years. So there was no real opportunity to continue doing what we were doing uh, during that time. So I looked for new opportunities. Uh, and I, I moved from um, South Africa, well I, I was still in South Africa but I started working for a Dutch, international Dutch company. Um, that was trying to grow um, underwater mining throughout the world, and spent two years working for IHC out of uh, out of Rotterdam, and through that got to meet some of these deep water uh, underwater exploration companies. Um, and the the chairman of Neptune Minerals um, at a dinner in Rotterdam said to me one day, "He said, is there any reason you can't work for me?'" And I said, "Nope." <laughs> and I got a crazy job offer that, um, that I just couldn't refuse and, and I moved from Cape Town to, um, uh, to St. Petersburg in Florida and mm-hmm. just upended my life and you know, started a new adventure.
1: That's wonderful. Um, I love to hear that background, especially as it connects to your service in the Navy. Um, so, as you started, you know, understanding these subsea minerals, how critical they are. Um, that's really what I want to talk about yeah. um, in our session today. You know, every form of energy is somehow harvested from the earth, right? Correct. And You hear people talking about how energy transition is going to be zero to sixty. It's going to happen so fast. Mm. There are, you know, elements. Of of environmental risk, supply chain risk, you're mitigating those with your company, you have figured out kind of how to approach that. But and I want to talk about that. And it also kind of where those minerals are located Mm. even you know how what are the minerals used for just for someone who isn't um you know as well versed in Mm. marine minerals rare earth elements what are the primary ones i know some have been designated as critical minerals because they're used (coughs) in defense they're used Mm. for energy they're used to fuel some of the renewable energy sources um can you kind of give us just an overview of what the critical minerals are first
0: yeah, and, and I think um, you know, understanding what, what is meant by critical minerals is, is also important. Um, critical minerals are minerals that really underpin uh, the vast majority of our, of, of our modern life. Uh, so they are, are metals and minerals that are used in pretty much everything that we do. Um, and as far as a nation is concerned, um, they are necessary and essential for the, the economy to keep going. Uh, so the US government uh, published a list of 35 metals. Uh, and those the the key ones that we are focused on in uh, in the ocean business um, are cobalt nickel uh, copper uh, manganese, uh, all with the exception of copper that are on the critical metals list uh, and then we have the rare earth elements, which is a basket of about seventeen different um, um, metals uh, unfortunately they're called rare earth metals they 're actually not very rare uh, but they are very special in what they do uh, so I think copper is the easy one, uh, everybody knows copper and knows that it's used in everything. Um, but nickel is is key and important for um, the electric vehicle and the battery um, industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a big one that if we look at the the move to electric vehicles in order to address the, the world climate issues, if we look at uh, battery storage to, to mitigate the the challenges we have with wind farming for example. Uh, you know we need these metals in these batteries. So nickel and cobalt are the two that are really important for that aspect. Uh, manganese plays an important role as well. Uh, manganese is important for the steel industry, but is also important in the battery industry because you have different chemistries for batteries and these, these metals are all part and parcel of that. Uh, the rare earths, those are used for um, specialized technology. So when you look at an electric vehicle, um, you have a motor. This is a high efficiency motor. It uses uh, what we call rare earth magnets in order to be efficient. So we need those metals. But those metals are also used in the you know the screens used in the displays, television screens, solar panels. So um, you know they they used all over the place. Um, so that's just looking at the the energy market. But when you get into industry, um, aircraft um, aircraft engines use cobalt in their in their turbine blades. Cobalt is used in the medical industry. So you start seeing how these metals, without them, uh, life as we know it would not be able to happen. Um, So they're critical for us to be able to move forward. Um, And now you start getting into um, security of supply and you start getting into the strategic importance of these metals. And that's where it starts getting a little more complicated and it starts getting a little political. Uh, And it gets political because of where these metals are located. Um, You know, a lot of this comes out of um, South America, Africa, Australia, uh, Indonesia are, you know, where a lot of these metals are coming from. Uh, Geopolitically, they create their own challenges, just on the jurisdictions. Um, But they also have other geopolitical considerations because China as a nation has um, a a long-term strategy and plan, and they've gone out and secured the source of these raw materials in a lot of places. They have also you know, put money into these locations, built infrastructure, and through the lending of that money, control that infrastructure and are able, therefore, to control the supply chain, which under normal circumstances wouldn't be a problem. But when politics start coming to play, it really puts Europe and, and the US in a difficult position. And how do we address that is... Is is you know, one of the key challenges that I've faced.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think I, I hear you saying how accessible these minerals are certainly has become exponentially more important with the yeah. U.S. push towards renewables. Um, and like we said in the beginning, every element is going to have some kind of impact on mm. the environment. When we, you mentioned China, how I understand that they control almost all of the, the refinement or production of lithium, is that correct?
0: Uh, Not of lithium, uh, of the rare earths. Of Uh, of all the rare earths. Yeah, so the the rare earth market is uh, dominated by China. Yes. Um, They control uh, in the region of 80 to 90% of the refining. So part of the problem America has, for example, is that rare earths are mined in America, are shipped to China to be refined and then the finished product comes back. Um, That in itself is a challenge. Um, if you look at the other metals, um, cobalt, for example, uh, comes from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. 65% of the world's supply comes from there. Um, the ESG challenge with the, with the DRC is significant.
1: Absolutely, within um, human rights.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you have that challenge. Um, you know, and, and the U.S. as a country imports all its cobalt, uh, you know, we have the, the, there's a project in America that's, that's time to come on stream, the Idaho project, but it only has a small fraction of the cobalt we need. So it's not the solution, it's, it's a, a small part of the solution. Um, and, and this is where, from a terrestrial perspective, we have a real problem. A lot of the mines and a lot of the materials that we can get to um, are under you know, subtropical forests are deep underground, are very expensive to get, um, are in areas where the environmental impact of mining that is going to be significant. So part of the challenge we have is, how do we reconcile um, our push to green energy, our social consciousness, yet we stick our heads in the ground with regards to what's going on in the Congo? You know, we've seen companies that have signed deals to buy metals from the Congo, yet are signing agreements with the Worldwide Federation to put moratorium on underwater mining. How do you reconcile that? You know, this this is part of the, Uh, the issues that we need to address and we need to overcome.
1: I mean, where does the rubber meet the road on that? With this push towards all these electric vehicles, you know, especially from the current U.S. administration, you know, at what point is there going to be a realization that we don't have access to all this, that there are environmental and human rights impacts, um, and that maybe there shouldn't be such a vilification of the oil and natural gas industry (laughs) as it relates to this?
0: Yeah, correct. And, and, you know, I think uh, what a lot of people don't realize is, is that the oil and gas industry is, is far more reaching than just the gasoline in your vehicle. Um, you know, the, the clothes that you wear, the, the, um, you know, the products you use around your house, the, when you put face cream on, you know, that's a product from the oil and gas industry. So I don't know why we are vilifying something that is such a fundamental part of our, of our life. I understand the transition from gas burning engines to electric engines because we want to reduce emissions and we want to improve the you know, the, the world um, the, the greenhouse effect and and the climate change issue, uh, but that doesn 't mean that the the oil and gas industry is a villain um, it just means that we are you know doing the right thing in one particular area uh, so you know, I think people get caught up in the emotion uh, of, of, an, of a matter focus on one particular small point and and lose sight of the big picture and that is something we have with with underwater mining. We have the same thing where people are saying, we are going to destroy the oceans. Well let's unpack that. Um, The area that we are looking at, um, at our company, and I'm just going to talk about cobalt because that it's easy just to distill it to one metal. We are working in an area of about 10,000 square kilometres, which sounds like a large area but we are within the Cook Islands exclusive economic zone which is two million square kilometers, which is about 0.001% of the Pacific Ocean, let alone the world's oceans. And what we are going to do is we are going to have a, a mining operation that is designed in order to have the least amount of impact on the ocean. So how does this operation that is going to supply the cobalt that the world needs to do this energy transition going to destroy the oceans? That is the question we, we, we struggle with and, and, and don't understand how that connection is made. Um, and the other thing that we hear all the time is we know nothing about the ocean. Yeah, we, we, know, we don't know enough, but we certainly know a lot. And if you look at how we are approaching it, we, you know, we talk about being sustainable and responsible. Um, our program, before we even contemplate mining, um, Our our work program that commences um, sometime next year is a three-year program just studying the environment in which we are going to operate so that we understand unequivocally what that ecosystem looks like, how it operates, and what the pressure points are so that when we do go in, we are not going to do any significant and long-lasting damage.
1: The Energy Workforce and Technology Council is the global trade association for the energy services and technology sector and a proud sponsor of the Energy in Transition podcast. Representing more than 600 member companies and 600,000 jobs in the US, the council is transforming energy by providing members with tools, information, and representation to boldly enable a low carbon energy future safely, profitably, and sustainably. Through education, best practices sharing, supporting innovation and advocacy, we are driving a smart energy transition and empowering the energy workforce of the future. Right. That sounds very similar to all of the work that goes into seismic and all of the studying even before any um, oil and gas production. And it's interesting when you're talking... Talking about it, you're referring to it as mining. I have heard companies call it harvesting, just because of the sensitivities around what it actually is. Because, as you say, it is so politically charged. What are your thoughts on that?
0: You know, we we have this debate internally all the time, and you know, you can put lipstick on a pig; it remains a pig. Um, <laughs> you know, that's the reality. If if we make statements like we want to be transparent um, with regards to how we are going to do it, uh, we want to get people to to take what we are saying as genuine um, and, and that we are being open and honest, then how can you tell them it's harvesting when everybody knows it's mining? So it, 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 for me, it, it's almost uh, disingenuous by trying to change it. So let's call it what it is. Let's understand that's what we're doing. Let's look at all the bad mistakes that have been made in the past and let's make sure we don't do them going forward. Because without this, we cannot get to where we want to be. We have a fundamental crisis heading our way we do not have the metals from land-based sources at the moment to achieve what we what everybody's attempting to do Uh, you know you can get reports that show yes there's enough production on land the problem that with that is when you look at the break-even price for producing that metal um, the metal prices have to be two three times what they are today how do you um, you know as a, as a person making a report and quoting statistics, reconcile making this bold statement that we have enough metals when you cannot produce it uh, at a cost effective manner. you know that 's the reality in the ocean, our break even price is on par with the big production mines it 's at the lowest um, the lower end of the, uh, of the cost curve. Uh, environmentally, the impact is significantly lower to what 's happening on land. The biodiversity in, our, in the ocean, Um, You know, some of the figures say that the biodiversity where we are mining is 20 times less than the equatorial forests, three and a half times less than just normal land uh, mines. Um, It's just a no-brainer. We have to go there. And I think people need to understand this. If they don't buy into the reality that we have to mine the oceans, then we have to go back and look at all these plans we have for... Uh, electric vehicles and renewable energies to address the climate change issue. And we have to um, reassess those goals.
1: Absolutely. And you mentioned reports. So hopefully more and more (laughs) of this information is coming out and there is, you know, becoming a broader understanding. Um, The International Energy Agency came out with a report about critical minerals, how much we'll need. Um, What were your thoughts on that report? and, And I mean, do you feel like it could be absorbed widely or you know, was, it, was it correct? Uh,
0: the, the report is, um, makes a, a lot of really good points and, and the key point is that we do not have enough uh, of those metals available at an economic level to be able to meet our targets. Um, that for me is the big takeaway. Uh, and without us getting into the ocean and mining the oceans uh, in a responsible and, and, um, and environmentally friendly manner, we are not going to meet our targets. So those energy goals that everybody is setting, um, you know, what we need to understand is the ocean is where we have to get it. And I think that for me is is the takeaway from that report. Um, the other thing is timing. You know, people think, "Oh, this is a problem that is you know, it's down the road. We'll we'll deal with it then." Uh, it's not. In mining terms, it's almost too late. You know, Typically a land-based mine takes anywhere between 7 and 15 years to come on stream to produce. If you look at those reports, those reports say that as early as 2023 we don't have enough metals. So how are we going to solve this problem? Three years is not a long time, it's a blink of an eye. So we, we have a challenge and, and we need to start moving and what we need is that people need to take note and they need to start realising that without the investment um, in our future now in order to secure the supply chain, not just the back end, the sexy stuff which is the processing side, we got to get right down to the front end, the, the source of the materials, we need to lock that down and we need to make sure that we have that tied up. What's the point of having a big process plant if you don't have the metals to feed into it or the raw materials to feed into it rather? so that for me is is um you know what the report hopefully does is is awakens people to um it's almost too late. We need to move now, and we need to move in a very um, assertive manner to get this problem addressed.
1: I certainly think that people should be more aware of what supply <clears> chain <throat> disruptions can do yeah. um, to an economy in, in the post COVID world. Certainly, you know, after the the ship that, you know, blocked the canal for so yeah. long, and, yeah. um, you know, there should be a broader realization mm. um, about how critical supply chains are yeah. um, within our economy. And Certainly as we're trying to progress um, in in these renewable energy areas uh, that need so many of these minerals. Um, one thing quickly before we get too much further. So we talk, you talk about the environmental impact and how within your company, you're making sure that you're doing that sustainably. What exactly does that look like? I know that it is not a net that scrapes the nodules up from the Mm -hmm. ocean floor. Um, you know, I've read things about plumes that come from companies that do that. Can you tell us just a little bit about how it actually works mechanically?
0: Yeah, um, it, the, the best way to describe the deposit, and, and I think talking about the nodule deposit is also important. Uh, when you talk about mining, mining has, very, has many different forms. You, you have underground mining where you dig in deep tunnels and you're you, you boring out the rock. You have the, uh, the big open cast mine that everybody knows where you have this terrible scar on the land and you dig this big hole. Um, the, and, and the reason for that is the type of mineral deposit. You know, if we go back to when gold was first found, uh, the miners used to walk along the mountain with a, with a pickaxe and they would chisel on the rock and they would discover gold. Um, and as time went by and we, we, we used more of this, we had to go deeper and deeper and deeper and it got more uh, complicated to get. Uh, where we are in the ocean is that we are back in those days. It's sitting on the surface of the ocean. It's sitting easily accessible, readily available. So the nodule deposit, uh, the way I like to describe it is if you have a bag full of golf balls, and you drop them on your carpet, that's what a nodule deposit looks like. It's a single layer of these pebbles or stones, the size of a golf ball in the Cook Islands where we're working, that lay on the floor, but they lay closely um, meshed against each other. So to get them, all you literally have to do is take a hoover or a vacuum cleaner and run it over the top of them and lift them off the sea floor. So that's what we are doing. We are not doing traditional mining where you are digging and and um, excavating, we are going across the surface and we are just sucking up the very top layer of the ocean floor. Obviously it has to be over a large area in order to get the volumes, um, but that's part of you know, the management that we do. So we have a machine um, that we um, either drive or tow across the sea floor. Um, it uses um, a vacuum that is generated through um, induction using water to create um, a suction effect. Uh, it comes into the machine uh, and this is where where we the guys get smart, where the engineers are really thinking um, outside the box. So what we are doing is as it comes up, we are ensuring that the plume that we will create, because we will create a plume, there's no doubt about it, um, is already mitigated in the machine before you, you've actually moved on. So what we are doing is we are doing things like uh, changing the flow regimes, reducing the water speed, allowing the the, the the fine sediment to coagulate and start falling out of the water column. So we move along, suck it up, pump it up to the surface, separate it from the water on board the ship. So we separate the nodules from the water. We return the water all the way back to the bottom of the sea floor um, and, and that's important. We, we're in 15,000 feet of water, so mm-hmm. it's really deep. So we're putting the water all the way back down. Why? Because that water has a different chemistry to the water at the surface, it has a different temperature, it has an vir- environmental impact, so we return it. And then the nodules that we have separated out, those get um, offloaded into a ship that gets sent ashore and gets processed. So there's no um, additional processing or risk that occurs other than getting the nodules up and sending them ashore. So as far as the pluming is concerned, pluming is a reality, we do have these plumes. There's also a lot of work being done on the plumes. These are not plumes that extend for hundreds of kilometers or come up from the deep ocean to the surface. Um, the work we are doing, and, and a lot of research has been done on this, is showing that the plumes um, fall out of the water column fairly quickly. Uh, when I say fairly quickly, typically um, less than you know, a mile um, from the site of uh of mining, this water, this plume will fall out of the water column. Um, and part of the work we are doing before we go mining is to understand what is the background turbidity of the water because a plume is an increase in turbidity in the water. What is the background turbidity? We don't know that yet, we need to find that out. So pluming is an issue that um, we are engineering and mitigating because it's important. It's also the only real visual um, mechanism that the environmentalists have to, you know, to, to use as a as an emotional tool. Look at look at this big smoky plume that they're going to make. It's not the case. What what for us is important is the removal of the nodules from the seafloor and how is that going to impact the biological life on the seafloor. And that's a lot of work and study we're doing. Now in the Cook Islands, um, and, and the reason I talk about the Cook Islands is we're in the Cook Islands, there's a lot of other nodules up in the Clarion Clipton Zone which is in the center of the Pacific. But in the Cook Islands, the area in which we work in is an ocean desert. So we have very little biomass, we have very little animals and the work that we've done so far, we've encountered very little life And We've recovered um, about 50 samples of nodules off the seafloor thus far and have not encountered any life on the nodules as such. We know there is life but it's not living on the nodules. So this is part of what we need to do is understand that ecosystem, understand the life that is there. Um, We are fortunate that we're in a desert so we're not anticipating a lot. Um, But what we are going to make sure is that A, it's not unique. Um, B, that we're not going to destroy it or kill it out. Uh, and that once we've taken the nodules away that that light can you know rehabilitate and continue working
1: So what needs to happen in a legislative or regulatory sense? And I assume that this is a a global type um, effort um, for this harvesting, this mining to happen sustainably for us to get what we need. You mentioned the environmentalist. I know Greenpeace has called for moratorium on deep sea mining. And as you say, if we have a moratorium on deep sea mining, how are we going to come up with these minerals um, so, again, it's kind of a catch-22, but what ideally happens, um, what kind of regulation can, can you know, give us a beneficial way to do this in a sustainable manner?
0: Well, the regulations are already in place. In the Cook Islands, we already have the Seabed Minerals Act, um, which gives us the, um, the regulatory framework to do exploration and, and to you know, get to the mining phase. Uh, the National Environmental Services have the Environmental Act which is very clear on on what needs to be done. Uh, the Cook Islands, the, the entire ec- exclusive economic zone of the C- Cook Islands is um, falls under the Mariah Moana Act which means it's a natural reserve and only the areas that are opened up can we go and have activities in. So the regulations are already there and um, the regulations are such that no activities can occur unless they are approved. Now, with regards to that approval, there's already a well-established mechanism whereby we know what has to be done in order to uh, get that environmental permit. And that is work that has been done um, internationally for the last 20, 30 years. People have been studying the oceans and the scientists have developed structures and frameworks that we follow in order to make sure that we clearly understand the environment in which we work in. Uh, identify all the aspects of it, model it and are then able to use that model to determine how is our system impacting on it. Those impacts are then um, assessed and are determined that if they are within agreeable uh, levels which are determined by the scientists, then our system is able to go forward. So our environmental program to get that permit um, is a three to four year program during which we currently have about five campaigns planned where we are just doing environmental data collecting in order to uh, build up this this knowledge of the ecosystem. So that's the practical process. But in addition to that, we also use the process of, of adaptive management uh, and we apply the precautionary principle. So what those are, the precautionary principle is that because you know nothing doesn't mean you cannot go ahead and do it, but what you need to do is do it in a in a in a, in a cautious manner. So what we do is we, we know little about a particular area, we'll devise a plan, we'll go out, do the work to better understand it, take that information, feed it back into the process and, and continue evolving it. Adaptive management it sits on top of that and that is when you get this information, you look at what you're doing, if what you're doing is not ideal, you adapt it. So it's an iterative process and it's an evolving process. And it's a mechanism whereby we can go into this environment where the knowledge that we have at the moment is not as robust as we may want it to be, but through this process we are able to grow and increase that knowledge. And with this mining activity, yes, we'll go in initially and we won't know as much as we will know in five or ten years' time. But we've enshrined these principles that know as we go along, we will continue improving and continue evolving. I think a lot of people don't realize that the likes of myself and all the other mining folks, we are not out there to destroy the environment. If if anything, we are conservationists in our own right. Um, I don't want to destroy this and and destroy it for my children. I want to do it correctly. What I'd like is for the environmental folk that are opposed to it to come sit at the table with us and engage with us and let's together in a collaborative manner take this forward and, and build this new industry in a manner that enables mankind to achieve our goals but to do it in a manner that we are not continually fighting with one another.
1: I think those exact words are thought and um, articulated by every oil and natural gas producer as well. I mean, yeah. it is truly a very, very similar situation where you know all of this development for energy sources, the different energy sources, yeah. um, it, it does come from the earth. We do want to do that in a sustainable and environmentally Correct. friendly manner, and we do have to have a seat at the table to get appropriate, you know, regulations. Yeah. And you mentioned kind of the international regulatory environment around that. I assume since, you know, these metals are commodities, there's also sovereign nations, the royalty, you know, uh, aspects are the same. Each sovereign government has its own take portion. That's similar uh, to oil and gas development. So, um, could you explain a little bit of that?
0: Yeah. um, With us working in the Cook Islands, um, the ESG component is critical. You know, so uh, we we've been touching on the environmental part, but the you know the social part is is massive for us, um, the the Cook Islands, um, and and anywhere where we do these these uh, these nodule projects, um, ESG is is key and critical. So yes, there are the usual taxations royalties um, that we have to pay once we're in production, um, and it's at, you know if you're in the international waters, it's it's controlled by the United Nations and and they have a mechanism for distributing it distributing it. Uh, In the Cook Islands they've created a a national sovereign fund like Norway did and the funds that come from this process will go into that and will be used for the general upliftment of the Cook Islands. So that's what the government will do with the royalties. What we are doing as a company is that we are going to be creating infrastructure. Um, People get get caught up with the mining ship but they don't understand necessarily all the, the periphery that's around it. So we need warehousing. We need um, vessels that support us. We have people flying in and out. We need industries to repair and maintain our equipment coming ashore and doing new stuff for us. Uh, we need laboratories to you know assess all the the, the monitoring samples from the um, from that area that need to be tested. Uh, and you need people to do that. You need scientists that do environmental work, geological work, ocean work. Um, and part of the the social problem the Cook Islands have at the moment is they can't keep their children on the island. There's no work for them. They don't want to make beds and surf tourists at bars. They want to be engineers and scientists and so forth. So what these projects do is, is create that um, infrastructure on the island and those job opportunities for um, uh, for the kids and, and the kids can then, you know, live there. and And whether they are, you know, electricians or welders or environmental scientists they now have you know hope and a job on the island and they can stay with their families um, and, and you know so that that's an immediate impact we're going to have and that's not an impact that only happens when we start mining it's an impact that happens from the very first time we start operations in the Cook Island and that is a key a fundamental important thread for us um, So yeah I, I think that um, the you know on the ESG side there's a lot of benefit that these projects bring. Um, you know, you look at Houston and you look at the, the amount of jobs and infrastructure that the oil and gas industry created here. I look at Cape Town where I'm from and I look at the industry and the infrastructure that the underwater diamond mining industry has created. Um, and, and it's a thriving industry that now works around the world. You know, this is the potential for these regions where underwater mining comes into operation because it needs that support and infrastructure and the community benefits from that.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I can't help but not sit here and think about how all of your challenges are so similar to the challenges, you know, that are faced with onshore and offshore oil and gas development. Um, you know, it's truly a, a, a perception issue. Um, and I wish, you know, that we could find a way to kind of work together, not only to articulate the facts that surrounds our need for critical minerals if we're going to push these renewables um. You know, efforts and goals, um, but the true nature of what happens in deep sea mining, yeah. in you know, deep sea oil and gas development, and how these companies are working to do this in a sustainable way. Yeah. Um,
0: and I think there's a great opportunity for the oil and gas industry. Um, you know, we, we, we touched early on just on how the mining system looks and what we're doing. Um, every component that, that we need as a company. To mine these nodules and bring them up to the surface, I can point to a number of Houston-based oil and gas companies that have all of those components um, that are logical choices for this. And, you know, I think there's, a, there's an opportunity here for the energy companies in Houston to take this opportunity seriously and to take the time and some of their RD funds and start spending it here. Because this is something that, in addition to what they have in the oil and gas industry, could become a second pillar business for them. Um, and I'm, I've been surprised at the lack of uptake, although I must admit over the last three months or so, um, there's been some more interest shown. But you know, I think this is a great opportunity and it would be remiss of the, of the executives in these companies not to be tasking people to start you know, taking a serious look at this. Because it, it's going to happen.
1: I agree with that 100%. That's one of kind of the main things that we promote um, at the council is the fact that a lot of the energy technology companies we work with, energy services companies are involved in all of these. I will throw a plug in for Oil States International. I know for a fact they're involved in this. Um, and that's a company that was primarily involved in oil and gas development, mm-hmm. but they are involved in deep sea harvesting. I know through a lot of their equipment fabrication. Um, so they are certainly companies in this space. But I agree. I agree that it's an extraordinary opportunity yeah. um, and I think the more we talk about this how you know we're, we all have to work together to achieve these these environmental mm. goals that we have these you know low carbon net zero goals but it's only going to come through a reality check Correct. of what's available, how we're going to be able to get it and who the companies are that are doing it correctly.
0: Correct. And and you know, who are the companies that are out there that are serious about doing it correctly? You know, that that's the other thing. This you know, the one thing that at Ocean Minerals we we keep plugging to to people we speak to. Um, you know, this is a real company, we want to make it happen. We wanna see this coming to, to fruition. Um, but what we need is we need we need partners and we need support. Um and, and that's what we're looking for. So, you know, um hopefully there are a few people that have been listening and, um, you know, we'll, we'll see where that goes. Awesome.
1: <laughs> then our work for the day will have been done. <laughs> well, Hans, thank you so much for coming. I just I enjoyed understanding more about all of this, just even the educational aspect, but certainly what Ocean Minerals is doing. Um, and I look forward to kind of continuing the relationship. There are definitely things that we can work on together um, to achieve all these common goals. So thanks so much for being here.
0: No, Leslie, my pleasure. And thank you very much for the invitation.
1: Thanks Thank you. everyone. Tune in and like, and share on your favorite platform, uh, the energy and transition podcast, and we'll continue this series on rare earth minerals. Um, it's exciting. Um, and not just for me who loves all the nerdy things, uh, you know, we love talking about this. So tune in and see you next time. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on another great episode of the Energy and Transition podcast. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. It's the best way to support the podcast and to grow our community. Also, if you want to reach out to us, please go to our website at energyandtransition.com and we'll catch you on the next episode.